If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support, or talk to someone you trust. In this week's episode, I speak to Richard Palmer, who is the founder of the Eating Disorder Recovery Clinic and an eating disorder therapist. We speak all about the role of an eating disorder therapist, the difficulty in accessing the right treatment and the different therapies that a patient may need. We speak about the training that is required to be an eating disorder therapist and how working within eating disorders can be draining and burnout can happen, but the reason why people do it and why it is so rewarding. We also speak about the resilience and the characteristics that are needed of therapists. And I really hope that any therapist listening to this feels so proud to do the work that they do. And I'm really grateful to you because it is not an easy job, but you are doing amazing work. And I hope that this podcast reflects that. So we today, very excitingly, are talking about your clinic the eating disorder recovery clinic and I'm actually very excited Mm -hmm. for both you and I that we're having this conversation because I shared something on Instagram the other day um that was from your Instagram feed and I had several people contact me and say oh are you having these guys on your podcast um and really excited to hear about your service so for those people that were very excited what is the Eaton Sodder Recovery Clinic and who are you? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, the Eaton Sodder <laughs> Recovery Clinic <laughs> is the, um, oh, where do I even start? It, it, it's so hard to put something that's so big and meaningful into just a few words. Yeah. Um, can I start with who I am? Absolutely, and, yeah. And take it That's from the most there. important thing. That's who we're talking to. Yeah. So, so I'm um, a therapist by trade. So I trained and qualified as a therapist back in twenty. I started training twenty eleven and qualified in twenty fifteen. Um, and I have a lot of personal experience with eating disorders. So people close to me. Um, I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder. But I recognise in myself that I would have ticked the boxes for binge eating sort at various points in my life. Um, I, and I've had friends with eating disorders. So eating disorders have always been very prominent for me and very important for me. Um, but during our, our training, we were always advised against working clients with eating disorders. You know, there's something that's almost a little bit taboo about it. You know, it's one of those things that seems as being a bit too hard or too complex for us to work Just... with. Yeah, so it, it's really common um, therapy trainings that I'm aware of. Uh, be discouraged, but you know, working with eating disorders is almost a taboo in the therapy world, unless you're in the NHS or in one of the big organisations. And that's primarily because they are very complex. And of course, far too many people do die from them, whether that's from medical complications or through suicide, they are high risk illnesses. So I had this massive personal passion to work with eating disorders. 
um, but I didn't have that professional framework to work with eating disorders um, because there's very little training in it in the, in the psychotherapy world. Fast forward sort of five years. So I work as a generalist therapist for the first five years of my qualified career. And the Iron Mill College, which is a college um, that specialises in psychotherapy training uh, down in Devon, near where I am in Somerset, uh, they launched uh, a six-month eating disorder diploma. So I saw this diploma and thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a go because I don't understand why we can't do it. Now, as this was launching, I actually had two clients with eating disorders. Now, the clients weren't working with me for the eating disorder. I had to refer them to the NHS for that. Um we were working more on the underlying stuff, the underlying traumas and the anxieties. But the clients were coming back to sessions with me saying, actually, the help I'm getting elsewhere isn't really helping with the eating disorder. I don't feel that I'm getting the best that I could be from this. So a combination of that and my personal interests made me go, oh, you know, let's take a risk and do this diploma. Brilliant move, fantastic move, because it was the one of the most enjoyable <laughs> trainings I have ever done in my life. Um, the, the tutor was amazing. The group was amazing. It was fantastic. And the tutor, um, a lady, no relation to myself, but called Sarah Palmer. Um, the <laughs> very first week, she was telling us about herself and how she got into working with eating disorders because during her training, her initial training was also, it was different to my initial training. She was told, oh, you know, we shouldn't really work with eating disorder clients. It's too big, it's too complex, it's too dangerous. And with her history of eating disorders and, and you know, being around people with eating disorders, she sat there and said, why? Why can't we do this? So she did. Um, and that built up and up and she worked for a couple of organizations and then she was doing this training. But it was her saying, actually, no, we can do this. We can support these clients that made me really want to get involved in that as much as I could, because that's my you know, eating disorders. They're, they're horrible. They're devastating. They are awful for the people with them and the people around them. For me to work with, that makes them so interesting and so rewarding to work with. So back in 2020, um, coming off the end of this diploma, I went full hog into, I'm just going to work with eating disorders. I don't care what the people around me say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to make it work. And that's what I did. I've spent the next three years um, just myself, an independent practitioner, as most therapists in the UK are, working by myself, figuring out how to work with eating disorders. And I loved it. You know, and I loved every, I love every single minute of it. it, it it's amazing work. But there's a downside. And the downside is... Being an independent therapist is actually really quite lonely because of the nature of our work. We can't talk to many people. I can't go home and talk about my day at work. I can't go out for a drink with friends and talk about my clients. You know, for obvious reasons, that would be highly frowned upon. And so it gets, it gets quite lonely quite quickly. And then with eating disorders, 
that's almost compounded because even though we have to have clinical supervision and even though most of us have colleagues who are therapists very few of them have any experience with eating disorders so even if you spoke to them about it there's no real support there there's no back and forth there i had um because of my experiences on diploma i had a few um therapists who work for my other business and so my other business is another therapy business and we take trainee therapists um, and they do their clinical placement with us um, so because of my experience was on the eating disorder diploma they decided to go and do the eating disorder diploma but for various reasons they didn't want to set up their own private practice working with eating disorder clients so we get to this point in sort of very early this year early 2023 where um i'm loving what i do but emotionally finding it very challenging because it's such deep um work so finding it very very emotionally challenging and um constantly turning clients away because by now my name's getting out there a bit i was starting with an average of one new client a month and I was getting an average of 14, 15 inquiries a month. So 13, oh. 14 people a month, I was having to turn away. So I'm sorry, but I'm fully booked. And they're asking, okay, can you recommend anyone? No, I can't. So, yeah, there's a few people near London I know. There's a couple of organisations I know, um, but no one in this area. Um, and then my health caught up with me. And I ended up having an operation on my back. So I took, it was going to be up to three months off work. In the end, it was, I think, two months I had off work. Um, I have ADHD. Being off work and having to lay very, very still while my back recovers from an operation was not healthy for my brain. So I dived headfirst into setting up an organisation. So that the colleagues I had who had done the training but didn't want to do private practice could come and join me and work alongside me in an organisation, small organisation. Long, oh, I made made this a long story, but cutting the story short, we end up in April when I'm about to come back to work, or March I'm about to come back to work. And I contact the two of the therapists. I say, look, this is what I'm doing. Do you want to join me? If you want to join me, we launch on the 1st of April. So they both said yes. And 1st of April 2023, we launched the Eating Disorder Recovery Clinic in Somerset. That's a brief, not very brief overview of me. I'm a great waffler and I'm a great waffler. Um, it's good so... for a podcast. <laughs> um so that's about me i i need it can you guide me with a question yeah so i was gonna say i, I thought you were gonna go somewhere then but i was gonna say i have quite a few questions based on what you've said mm. and firstly i think it's fantastic that you have started the clinic because as you very yep. clearly documented in what you've just said there are so many people that need help um and so many people that aren't getting the right kind of help 
And I have a question in terms of, so you were saying that you had a lot of patients that were coming to you when you weren't specialising in eating disorders and you were kind of mm-hmm. going to the trauma and the stuff kind of below the eating disorder. And yeah. then they were going to the NHS for eating sort of support and it wasn't really working. Mm-hmm. Is that still the approach that you have with your clients now in terms of supporting them with eating disorder recovery? or? Is there like a different method that you use or are there things that you like add on now that you are working with eating disorders or people with eating disorders, sorry? Yeah. So um, that's a really good question. It's been a very steep learning curve over the last sort of three years, learning Mm. how to work with eating disorders. You know, there, there's various um, approaches out there. There's various textbooks therapists can buy. There's various very short training courses therapists can go on to learn how to work with eating disorders. But if you dive into the evidence on those, at best, you're looking at around 33, 34% recovery rates at best. You know, they're not fantastic. And one of the reasons that I would argue they're not fantastic is because those approaches, there's nothing really inherently wrong in those approaches as they are. It's just that they don't work on the underlying stuff. Mm-hmm. And they'll say like um, CBTE, CBT for eating disorders. I'm a bit of a fan of it. I've done the training in it. I've done a clinical placement in it. I use it a lot in my work. When a client comes to me and says, can I have CBT for my eating disorder? And I only want CBT for my eating disorder. I will turn around and say, no, I, you can have that elsewhere, but I will not provide that. And the reason I won't provide it is because you know, in, in the textbook for it and all the training for it, it actually states in CBTE, we do not work on the underlying causes for an eating disorder. I view, yeah, I know, I know this next bit is a bit that's hotly debated and quite rightly because we don't know. I... Um, view eating disorders primarily as coping mechanisms. You know, primarily our brains are trying to keep us safe from something. You know, whether that's our emotions, our thoughts, trauma, you know, whatever it is, our brains trying to keep us safe. And so for me, there's no point working on just the eating disorder and ignoring the underlying stuff because their brains are going to go, well, we can't cope. You know, we need something else to help us cope. Um, and there's also no point just working on the underlying stuff without addressing the eating disorder because most people are ill for so long and become such a strong, powerful habit. And because there's benefits there, it's very hard to let go of it. You know, it's very hard to move away from the eating disorder. So you have to, in my view, you have to combine both approaches in one. So what I've been doing um, myself and now trying to do with this clinic is integrating the best parts of cbte and mantra and um, ifs so internal family systems and a few other therapies uh, like cognitive remediation therapy integrating those with the underlying work so i describe that as being some more traditional therapy mm-hmm. and so what we do is we, we we do sort of a four or five week assessment with new clients who are coming in and at the end of that assessment, we'll have a great big long list of 
some eating disorder things that need addressing, some trauma things that need addressing, anxiety, depression, family, work, education, whatever it is. We have a great big long list. And we agree a rough order that we're going to address those problems with, or problems in. And as we're working through them, we're constantly checking in, how are you? How are you doing with your mood, with anxiety, with your thoughts? And as they're starting to improve, as the person's starting to improve in how they're feeling, we can go, oh, okay, does this mean we can now increase the uh, quantity of your food? Or can we increase the variety of your food? Or if someone's come to us with binge eating disorder, it would be, oh, can we try and eat more regularly to reduce the risk of binging? So we do it in um, quite a stepped approach. It will be work with an underlying thing, then work with eating disorder, underlying thing, eating disorder, underlying thing, eating disorder. And I found generally that's the most productive way forward, most effective way forward for us. Doesn't work for everything, uh, sorry, everyone, because mm-hmm. nothing ever will. Yeah. Generally, it's working pretty well for us. Yeah. It's it's really refreshing hearing what you're saying. I think it's um, hopefully becoming more sort of common knowledge. Um, but I think you're completely right in the fact that you can't you can't just do one thing. You can't just do the eating disorder symptoms. Or you can't just do the, the trauma or you can't just do the underlying mm-hmm. issues. And with that comes the whole, you can't just do the one form of therapy. Um, yeah. And it's actually really interesting what you were saying when you, when you started talking about how, you know, eating disorders are a coping mechanism. And I was like, yeah, I do agree. But I think they start out as a coping mechanism. And then you went on to say about how, you know, it actually, because they can persist for so long, it becomes habitual. It becomes somebody's just automatic response. And through my own personal experience, that is literally like Mm -hmm. the place where I'm in at the moment in that I'm realizing that these coping mechanisms I've been using for 10 or so years, Mm -hmm. it took me a long time to realize it. They're not actually that good. Um, you know from a mixture of like personal things happening outside of the eating disorder I think I've been actually in a weird way quite lucky in my life in that the biggest thing to impact me is the eating disorder which I know sounds mm-hmm. really weird but I, I've almost because that's just kind of been always the perpetual thing that's all I've sort of had to deal with and I guess that is part of an eating disorder is that you because you have the eating disorder you don't really think about other things you don't think about other social concepts that are happening or like things that are happening outside of your world because you're so focused on the eating disorder and then recently there's been things that have happened that I can't avoid and I've had to deal with and so my capacity to deal with things has just completely exploded And, and that's been the realization for me in that this eating disorder is not actually helping but it is so habitual yeah. that the, the frustration is now building that I can't break out of it but I need yeah. to be able to break out of it um and it's it's a very interesting sort of journey that I'm finding myself on because I'm realizing this isn't helping this has never been helping but now that stuckness is so strong that you can't just kind of like snap out of it as I wish I would um and I think that's why what you were saying about, you know, the different approaches is so important mm-hmm. because one form of therapy for that would not just, that's not just going to kind of, I'm not just going to be able to do that. And then all of a sudden the, the light switch goes and off we go. Um, yeah. But. Absolutely. 
Oh no, what were you going to say, something? I was going to say absolutely, and that's why the research does tend to show that for all the benefits of things like CBTE and mantra mm-hmm. and the other approaches, at best a 34, 30, 33-34% effective one delivered just as that approach mm-hmm. because they're not dealing with everything else that's going on. Yeah, exactly. And so this is where my next question was going to come. And mm-hmm. this may be a, a very difficult question to answer. Um, but I know that we spoke about this when we had a little chat beforehand in that I think we're starting to realise the, or we are realising we're talking about it right now, the, mm-hmm. the fact that one singular form of treatment doesn't help somebody you know you can't just have therapy you might need to see a dietitian you might need to work with a nurse that sort of thing you you need that integrated approach which when you have services like the recovery clinic and obviously that's what we're talking about today so I really do Mm -hmm. want to kind of focus on that that's brilliant but the issue comes in that most people only have access to services such as the NHS and the NHS doesn't have the resources the funding the structure Mm -hmm. to be able to provide people this approach that we're now realizing works so what happens then that's a very good question and you're right (laughs) that's a very hard one to answer I don't know you went you just your screen went back it did go back didn't it i don't know why then it came back very quickly my headphones went bit um i'll carry on answering the question um <laughs> i mean it's something that one is actually debated really frequently um mm-hmm. between professionals and people like myself who are working independently we debate and discuss and look at possible options. You know, when we're talking about the NHS, um, you know, I, I know I said this to you before when we had our chat on the phone, I have a love-hate relationship with the NHS, and that's no secret. Do I believe that the vast majority of individuals in the NHS want to do a good job and want to support the people in their care? Absolutely. You don't get a job in the NHS because you don't like people or you don't care. But the systems and the lack of financing and the lack of appropriate training just means that the vast majority of people are accessing services and they're not receiving, basically what they need, they're not receiving that integrated service. And at any one point, um, I will have a handful of clients who are working with both myself and various um, NHS is a you know, uh, NHS teams across the country, and some are doing better than others at integrating treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, the, how do we move forward in a way that meets the needs of you know the uh, at least one point two five million people with eating disorder in the UK? Which is, a, I mean, that in itself, reaching 1.25 million people, yeah. that's a Herculean task. And how do we integrate treatment so everyone can access the treatment that they need when they need it? And how do we make that either free at the point of access or affordable? I don't have an answer for you there because it's, it's so complex, it's so big. 
you know, I'm thinking as we, as I'm talking, I'm thinking to some of my clients, and some of my clients, um, you know, they they could have three months, four months, five months, six months of integrated treatment in in a service, whether it's NHS or somewhere else, mm. and that would be enough for them because they're only six months into their eating disorder and the underlying stuff. Yes, it's there. It's complex. It's big. It's heavy. But we know how to deal with it, so we can deal with it. But then there's other clients we've got who, you know, they're going to need years of support to process the you know, the sheer amount of trauma they've had, or how it deeply embedded the depression is, and you know whatever's going on for them. I don't know. I don't know how we. You know, as a country, I don't know how we address that mm. because to get the specialists, you know, we have to have that training. The, the training I did, the one at IML Mill College, only runs once a year. Mm. And I think their places are capped at 18, I think. When I did it, there's only six of us on it. Mm. But then it's not just the eating sort of training. You have to have the trauma training and the depression training and mm. the anxiety training and the self-esteem training. And so to get all of that training and being able to deliver it to a client in the right way at the right time alongside holidays and sickness and bank holidays and Christmases. And mm-hmm. I, I do not envy the people in the NHS, but also the large organisations, um, you know, like Schoen Clinic or the Priory Hospital, I, you know, I do not envy those people whose job it is to try and organise all of this. Mm. Because, I- you know, we have 27 clients maximum at the moment. Mm. You know, it's a very small clinic. I'm keeping it small on purpose. And trying to organise this for 27 clients is a headache. Because you're trying to deliver your utter best to them all the time whilst people are on holiday or whilst there's sickness or yeah, you know, we had the client cancel yesterday because there's a road closure and they just they could not get to us. Yeah. Well that's put their treatment back a week. It's it's really hard, isn't it? And I think like you've highlighted so many things there that mean that the eating disorder treatment is so difficult and it just made me think about something that you were saying at the start um Mm -hmm. that I wanted to ask about in that you said that you were sort of discouraged in a way of not doing the eating disorder training and to me that would be kind of a great opportunity you know you're coming along with these very budding exciting clinical psychologists Mm -hmm. you know they're ready to learn um they're very open to like you know doing lots of different placements that for me would be a great time to have lots of placements available for people to try eating disorders obviously you have the difficulty that we have a mental health crisis not just an eating disorder crisis therefore we need support everywhere but even if I think back I'm you know I didn't do my clinical psychology training but I did a master's in eating disorders and I remember I wanted to I never wanted to go down the psychology route, but I wanted to get a job working in an environment with eating disorder patients mm-hmm. because that's where I thought I wanted my career to go down. And it was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Like the the job opportunities were so difficult, so competitive. 
and the competitiveness of it made me think you know there, there are so many individuals that want to do this you know like the assistant yep. uh, is it assistant psychology roles mm -hmm. in eating disorder clinics I that's what I wanted to do to then go on to research but I couldn't get one because they were so competitive yeah. so it makes me think you know starting from that base level of when people are doing their training is it that we don't have the resources again and the capacity to provide that training is it that we've we're so spare um, we're so sparse on therapists in eating disorders that they've not got the time and resources to provide the training to assistant psychologists i i don't know i don't know whether you mm. have any thoughts around that i can certainly uh talk about how how it'd be here to have a training here because we actually Absolutely, have a yeah. trainee coming on board with the team uh, next month in november um so you just to uh complete disclosure so i didn't go down the psychology route Mm -hmm. at all I decided very early on that route wasn't for me so I went down the psychotherapy route but we yeah. have the exact same problems guessing that experience is nigh on impossible mm. so eating disorders I you know they are very for lack of a better word popular choice for people to want to work mm -hmm. in I think there's something I think you know eating disorders are so common most people know at least one person who has suffered mm -hmm. with an eating disorder during their life. And yeah. so they become very personal to us and we want to help people because we've seen how horrible they are. When, you know, when you're in an organisation or you're running an organisation like this, we have so many factors to consider. And one of them is you know, client safety. And one of the things with client safety is we do not want to be chopping and changing therapists because even if the new incoming therapist knows exactly what you've covered before, it's still going to be a new relationship, new therapeutic relationship, a slightly different approach. It, it, it basically restarts the whole therapy process. So when we have trainees coming on board, to do any form of therapy with clients i would be looking for someone who's going to be able to give at least a year's uh, time to us if not longer mm. so that's really challenging the second one and i can't talk about this in the nhs because i know it is very different requirements but the second one for us is insurance you know we have to be insured for everything that we do and getting insurance to cover someone who isn't at that point qualified to work with eating disorders because of the risk of death and risk of medical complications is really really hard mm -hmm. so i've got I, I mentioned i've got a trainee coming on board in november um i called her a trainee she by that point will be a qualified therapist mm -hmm. she's coming on board to work in eating disorders um, because she thinks it's where she wants to be and she needs to get that experience to see if it is really where she wants to be. Sure. We were only able to get insurance to cover her because she is enrolled on that eating sort of diploma and starts that diploma in two weeks, two weeks tomorrow. So by the time she starts with us, she will be on the training. And that meant we could get that insurance to cover her work. The next really challenging part for an organization is 
you know, getting the clients to see a trainee. Mm-hmm. Clients are, you know, in our organisation, clients are coming to us paying a not inconsiderable amount of money. You know, we're, we're as far as treatment for eating disorders go, we're not expensive, yet you know, in comparison to others. But actually, for the vast majority of the population, you know, we're a considered expense. You know, we, we're talking sort of three hundred pounds a month um, therapy fees to, to work mm-hmm. with us. So it's it's not cheap. It's not affordable for a lot of people. So if you've got someone coming into our service who is investing on the very basic levels their time and money but on a much deeper level their hope for recovery and their hope for getting that recovered life that they really desperately want and need how many of us would want to entrust that to a trainee because I wouldn't if it was me I wouldn't if it was my partner I wouldn't if it was my son my daughter no, I would want the qualified, experienced mm. professional. So that's a huge problem for us. Thankfully, for this trainee, how we've got around that is, um, so this trainee was working in my other business as on the clinical placement. And one of her clients there disclosed having an eating disorder after they'd built up the safety of that relationship. So both the client and the trainee are coming over to this organization together. And the client is very happy to work with this person, even though they're not yet qualified Mm -hmm. eating disorders. But without that, I wouldn't take her on. She's a brilliant therapist. I've known her for over a year now, brilliant therapist. But I wouldn't be able to take her on. So I That's... agree with you. Yes, we've got to yeah, we've got to get the trainees in there to get that mm. workforce coming through. But it's so hard to do. That's such an interesting sort of thing that I've never really yeah I've never considered that before. Like I'm just thinking about all the healthcare professionals. You know, like when you go to the dentist, there'll be a trainee <laughs> dentist there. But you know, personally, some people might might be, but I'm not bothered about a trainee dentist watching the dentist you know, fiddle around in my mouth or when you go yep. to the GP, I'm not bothered about, depending on the subject, I'm, I'm, I'm okay for the um, trainee GP to be in there. But like you've said, when it comes to our mental health, I think it, specifically in eating disorders, I'm talking on eating disorders because that's what I know, but it takes so long to build that mm-hmm. relationship with a therapist, that trust. You know, you are, I always think with an eating disorder, it must be one of the most difficult things to treat because at the end of the day, you are having treatment for something that you feel is the one thing that protects you the most and the one yep. thing that you do not want to let go of. And I've always said this when I've done eating sort of training with healthcare practitioners is realistically, you've probably worked with so many people that are really grateful within that moment of, oh, thank you so much for your help today. Somebody with an eating disorder, if you're like supporting them with a meal, probably not going to be grateful because that's probably the last thing that they want to be doing. And so having, sorry, I've gone a bit off piece there, but building that trust with somebody takes so long and mm-hmm. opening up to somebody, you're not just going to say, oh yeah, like, of course your trainee can come and sit in my um, therapy session. Somebody might say that, but then I would question how sort of open and how authentic they're going to the, the client would then be in that yeah. session because I think you would naturally hold things back so when you're doing the training process 
how does that even actually work? Because do you have to like watch videos of how therapists have worked? Because I can't imagine that people let you sit in. Well, ex- exactly. That's a, when you were saying that. I was in my head. I was thinking, no, they wouldn't be allowed to sit in on yeah. on a live session with a live client. Yeah. Um. So it's really difficult to train for it. We it it kind of depends on where you go for the training. Um. But we actually practice on each other. So we okay. do what's called triad work or Gilmore groups, where you'll have um, one therapist, one client, and one or two observers. And you, you're, you're not role-playing some of you're not given a script, but you're role-playing mm-hmm. your role within yeah. that relationship. So I would role-play being a client. And you make it as real as possible. Mm-hmm. But it's a short 15 minute, 20 minute section with no before, no after. You know, it's not realistic at all. Mm. And so this is one of the things that you, one of the things you said to me you really wanted to talk about was of the role of trainees in the clinic mm. and why that's important to me. This is why it's important to me mm-hmm. because you can give someone all the academic training you want but you can't teach them how to be good with the clients until they get in there yeah. with the clients and learn how to do it. And that's really, really hard. Mm. And now one thing I've seen in my other organization, the clinical placement provider organization is to get to that point of having clinical placement, someone has done two or three years of academic training with no client work. Then you know, they're not allowed to go anywhere near a client until they've got to their um, their fitness to practice sign off, which happens in either the last year of their training or the year before last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they come to us for clinical placement. I cannot tell you how often someone does their first session or their 10th session or their 50th session and they come out and they go, this isn't for me. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they love the idea of it, but the reality is very different. Mm-hmm. And that's on on things like mild to moderate depression and anxiety, which are challenging to work with, but nowhere near as challenging as an eating disorder. So the question of how do we get more trainees in and trained not only academically, but also with the clients is a massive question that we're looking at. One idea I have kind of got floating around for the clinic um, for the future, you know, as you know, we're a very new business. So right now is about just getting us up and running fully. Um, but I want to, you know, two years down the line, three years down the line, set up a non-profit side of it where we can take those trainees who are on like the eating disorder diploma or on another eating disorder training. And then clients can come and have it. It couldn't be free because there's going to be overheads involved. But they could have vastly more affordable therapy mm. with someone that they know is a trainee. But importantly, because it's connected to the, the recovery clinic, yes, they're a trainee, but they're surrounded by the other professionals here who yeah. have the years of experience. So we can do that hand-holding. And also you can provide 
the support for them because I think one thing I've recognized in people that are training in eating disorders and all the kind of you know therapists or any healthcare professional that I've met that works in eating disorders it's a very emotionally taxing job because it's it you know I think any mental health condition is really difficult to work with but there's just something about eating disorders that makes it so emotionally draining and I know when I was working in eating disorders myself the constant talk about food, body image and exercise, that was all I would talk about all day. For somebody that had lived experience of an eating disorder, that was hard. But I remember speaking to my colleagues that hadn't got lived experience of an eating disorder and like, this is really difficult. And then not having, you know, if you're working individually, not having somebody to then offload that on, I can imagine... You know, I think one thing that's very common, like you were saying, is a lot of people will reach the point where they say, actually, this isn't for me. And I often think I don't think that's because of the topic or sort of the clientele, but it's it's the emotional impact it's having. Mm-hmm. And I think that's often because you don't have that space to share what you've spoken about, to sort of w- talk through that, which is why you creating your sort of trainee platform for people I think would be incredible because they you know obviously not disclosing names or anything but they would have that space to share how they're feeling about what they've experienced in a in a therapy session and speak to people that have been doing it for years and you know say this is what I've experienced have you had a similar situation like how did you navigate this how did you look after yourself in this and all of those things which I think that is a big thing for me that is lacking within the NHS services not only the kind of treatment that we're providing but the support for staff as well which is why we're seeing so many people think I can't do this and that's why we've just not got the appointments that we need to be able to provide. I agree that the burnout rate is huge Mm -hmm. yeah and I you know it's not limited to eating disorders as we've said um, but eating disorders or complex trauma services like that that burnout rate goes up massively Mm. one of the things that we already do here and that would be expanded you know as our team grows is every monday we have a two-hour meeting on a monday and some of that about half an hour of that is sort of business stuff so that's discussing new clients coming in clients who are being discharged and any business stuff that needs to be gone over but in the next hour and a half is just that offloading space or that discussing space of mm. oh I've got this happening with a client or I've got that happening with a client so we can just support each other mm-hmm. and and try to avoid that overwhelm and that burnout sure because it is emotionally taxing work and and you know you said talking about um food and body image and exercise all the time takes its toll absolutely does here because we're also working on the underlying stuff mm-hmm. we're also talking about complex trauma and depression and anxiety all the time and they take their toll as well mm-hmm. so the resilience that is needed to work in not well, eating source and mental health is massive mm-hmm. but that makes that care both self-care but also care within the organization not just important but absolutely vital mm-hmm. because if we didn't have that so if i didn't have that you know with the guys we've got working here already they'd burn out you know they're working with really heavy stuff they would burn out and then they'll be leaving i've got to get other therapists in who may not be mm-hmm. as well trained or as well experienced sure. 
and they've got to restart with those clients. So their client's recovery gets disrupted. And it becomes this vicious cycle where we're not actually helping anyone, therapist yeah. or clients. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why it is so important what you're doing and to sort of, you know, I'm so glad that we've been able to speak about that on this podcast today and to really highlight the importance of looking after yourself. We know when you're, when you are working as a therapist mm -hmm. or a healthcare professional in eating disorders and to kind of finish us off, I do, mm. I feel like we have, you know, and we've spoken about the realities of working as each sort of therapist, and I think that's really important. However, there is a reason that you're still doing it, I hope. Um, yep. And I know that um, when we spoke initially, I think I said something to you, and, I, and if you don't want me to mention this podcast, I can delete it. Um, I said something to you about crying, and you were like, I've had a great day because a patient cried and and I was like oh wow that's you know that's a bit harsh but you're like but that means that I've broken through and that means that mm -hmm. I'm like helping this person and helping them achieve something so why is it that you stay in the work that you do? I have a memory from when I was sort of five or six I was walking through the city where I grew up with my mum and I've got no idea who this person was, but I saw a lady sat on some steps outside the building crying. And I was, at that moment, I knew I didn't like that. I knew I didn't like seeing people upset. And that has stayed with me to now. I'm 36 now, and that's still with me. Mm. So when clients are coming in, yes, it's really heavy work. And some sessions you leave, and, and it feels like you've gone 12 rounds with Mike Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> but then you get those sessions where something shifts mm -hmm. and you see a genuine smile or you see a genuine bit of confidence. And that is the best feeling in the world. And if you don't mind, I've got two examples I'm allowed to yeah. give you for the podcast. I've checked out the clients I'm allowed to give that. you. Um, example one was um, a client who had to rearrange their appointment and messaged me to say that um, the, the date of the, the day of the new appointment was their two-year anniversary of recovery. Unbeknownst to me and them, so I went and bought a cupcake for them to, to celebrate that. And I then had no idea they had also bought cupcakes to bring in for the session. And cupcakes were their last fear food challenge. And they did it in a session with me. You know, they had a cupcake. I had a cupcake. That was flipping brilliant. I loved that. And then the other example, um, this one's a little bit longer ago now, but a client who um, was being, uh, was, was at university on a medical type degree and kept getting told, no, you can't come back for third year. You can't come back for third year. You're not ready. You're not healthy enough. And we, she got the phone call saying, you can come back. And, oh, I literally jumped and shouted and screamed because that was <laughs> just incredible. You know, that someone, she wasn't better, but it wasn't recovered by that point, mm -hmm. but she was recovered enough that she could go back and pursue what she wants to be pursuing. Yeah, that's why we stick this out. And I think you used a word earlier, you used the word resilient. Mm. And I think 
from my experience of working with eating disorder health healthcare professionals, resilience is the key word because you have the resilience to, you know, sit in a session with a with a patient with a client and then absolutely hate you, and you know probably yeah. say really bad things about you when they leave. They might even say them to your face, but you are you hold on to that resilience. You go through that with them. You go through the impact that it has on you. And then after however long, sometimes it can take friggin' ages. And so that patience as well, you then see that person become themselves and recover from their eating disorder. And like you said, that, you know, that takes potentially a long time, but to be able to see that transition. And I think that's what I was saying earlier about normally in healthcare, you probably see somebody get quickly quite well, but get well quite quickly um you know it might be that they've I don't know, broken their arm and then you put it in a cast mm. and it fixes that could still take a while but you you're going to see them you know yeah. a couple of months later and their arms fixed that's not going to be the case with an eating disorder but i think if you can withstand the time that it takes someone to recover the reward for you as a therapist by the end of it is just like a thousand times bigger because it has been that much more difficult journey to yeah. get somebody there i completely agree i've actually got a box over in the corner of my office well i call it a box as a, a a big wicker hamper and it's full of cards and gifts i've been given at the end of someone's treatment and if i've had a really rough day or rough week i go into that and i read through that that collection of memories of oh yeah this person recovered and that mm. gets you through and little, if I can go off on 30-second tangent for a little mm -hmm. side note very quickly, Han. Um, you said about clients occasionally hating you. Yes, they absolutely do. <laughs> now, I know people are going to be listening to this podcast, but you might be able to see if I turn. Can you see um, below the door handle and to the left, there's a mark on my door? Can you see that? No, because you've frozen. <laughs> oh, why is it frozen? That's rubbish. Uh, I'm so going to imagine I can see this mark the, yeah, on the, the door. The, the, where... It looks like a mark. It's actually a hole in my door. And it's a hole in my door from where um, a client got really angry with me and threw their mobile phone because I challenged them to reduce exercise. Mm -hmm. And I keep that hole there because it's just a funny reminder. I, I use it with clients say, you are yeah. going to hate me and that's okay. I'm okay with that. No, I really love that story because I think ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, the the things that we do that the eating disorder hates the most are the things that are going to help us to recover the most. And if it brings that much anger up at you that you throw your phone at the wall and create a dent in it, you know, that's provoking some emotion and, and feeling emotion, I think, in recovery as well is something that a lot of the time takes a long time to come through so I just love the fact that you have a box of you know a hamper full of all cards and, and thank you notes because that just shows how much you care and how much passion you put into your work um so I think if anyone takes anything from this I think this has been an absolutely incredible conversation um and re a really insightful one into working as a therapist but I think if anyone takes anything then you know that Richard cares and if you're looking for, I don't want to increase your waiting list like to 
20,000. Um, but if you're looking for a therapist that is going to challenge you, but cares a hell of a lot about you, then I think we found one. Um, so you. on that note, if people are interested in mm -hmm. finding more out about the Eaton Sort of Recovery Clinic, maybe coming for you for support, where can they reach out and find you? Yeah, so we've got um, a website, which is edrecovery.co.uk. Um, just a heads up, it is being redone. So there's going, it's going to be a bit hit and miss for the next couple of months. It is being redone. Um, and then people can also just give us a call. Um, our phone number is uh, 01278-619-149. You can give us a call, calling or, or messaging us does not mean that we're going to start charging you straight away. You know, we are, you know, it's a massive decision, entering treatment, utterly massive. Mm -hmm. Give us a call, send us an email. Your know, email is hello at edrecovery.co.uk. Send us an email and we will just talk with you and help you make the right decision for you. Whether that's working with us, working with someone else or not working with anyone yet, we will help you make that decision. So whatever you do for recovery, it can get off to the right step for you. Brilliant. And I'll put those details in the show notes for people so um, they don't have to go and run and grab a pen <laughs> and rewind and try and write everything down. Um, but honestly, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you. And I think, you know, it's a stark reality, which is a sad reality, but I'm just so grateful for, for people and for services like the, like yourselves that are helping people and giving them the right support so thank you very much and thank you we'll and thank you for you having soon. me i'll speak to you soon take care Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations.